as we change temperature, it's not about how that's affecting production. And that's part of the issue. But the other part of the issue is how are we changing the nutritional content of our plants? And how can we get around doing that? And so what, what can we even do about it? And because we're talking about these fundamental physical properties, it may not be something that you can get around with genetics. I mean, that's the thing is everybody's, well, just bioengineer a plant that can grow at hot temperatures, but it's also a high quality. Well, the, the genetics are happening in this physical context. And so those thermodynamics are sort of irrevocable. Then genetics isn't going to permanently solve the problem. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week we conclude our two-part discussion with ecologist Mark Ritchie of Syracuse University on how he and his SFI collaborators are starting to rethink the intersections of thermodynamics and biology to better fit our scientific models to the patterns we observe in nature. Most of what we know about the enzymatic processes of plant and animal metabolisms comes from test tube experiments, not studies in the context of a living organism. What changes when we zoom out and think about life's manufacturing and distribution in situ? Starting where we left off in episode 62, we tour the implications of Mark's biochemistry research and ask, what can studying the metabolism of cells tell us about economics? How does a better model of photosynthesis change the way we think about climate change and the future of agriculture? Why might a pattern in the failure of plant enzymes help biologists define where to direct the search for life in space? a better theory of the physics of biomolecules and the networks in which they're embedded provides a clearer understanding of the limits for all living systems and how those limits shape effective strategies for navigating our complex world. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review this show at Apple Podcasts and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu give. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. A cell can't just be full of enzymes because if the enzymes in the middle, if they make a product, it, it has nowhere to go because there's no empty space for it to be able to move in out of the cell. And so we have this fundamental problem of that the cell, the more work it does, presumably the more divisions it makes or whatever. So you can imagine the cells that do lots of work would be favored by natural selection. But at the same time, it can't be full because it needs to have space for stuff to move through. So the problem we were looking at was how much space is really required. And so we then get down into issues about like if something is moving through a fractal-like distribution of obstructions, what actually determines the likelihood that it will leave or the rate at which something will leave from some mean position in the middle of the cell. So in the end, we ended up combining some of the work that I'd done thinking about fractal distributions and, and fractal objects and the ways of describing those with work that Chris had been doing with 
how many ribosomes we're in a cell. And so like how much, how should we say, machinery is in a cell that's doing work. So we have succeeded in solving the problem, but only with numerical simulations at this point. So we're still looking for a more analytical solution, which I think is out there. I just haven't had time to get to it. And Chris has also worked on that. But fundamentally, what we then discovered was that these kinds of first principles would generate something that had been sort of out there, but unexplained. So when people started measuring metabolic rates of single-celled organisms, all the way down to the smallest bacteria. What they found was that instead of like what Jeffrey West found, especially mostly for vertebrate data, was that the metabolic rate tends to increase with mass to the point seven five or three quarters power. So the original science paper they had in 1997 and all the subsequent work has been about trying to understand why that exponent is three quarters as opposed to two thirds or something else. But when people looked at bacteria, they found that that relationship curved so nobody really understood why it curved and nobody understood like why it was so steep so that even at the smallest sizes, you were actually scaling with an exponent greater than one. <laughs> so this is called super linear scaling. And so it turns out that exactly what you were describing, when you start off small enough, you don't have a problem of diffusing your products. Like the very smallest cells are barely big enough to hold some of the more standard enzymes that are used in um, metabolism. So once they produce a product, it takes almost no time at all for that to be able to leave the cell. But as the cell gets bigger and bigger and bigger, if the enzymes are uniformly or randomly distributed throughout the cell, then you end up with this dead zone in the middle where stuff can't get out. So then that means that you're going to favor cells that aren't full of enzymes. They're going to have a lot of empty space in there because then each one of those enzymes that is remaining can sort of act in its full capacity and you can do more total work. And so it turns out that the scaling of those things then gives you this super linear scaling at smaller sizes because as you add size, you sort of like double or triple the number of enzymes that you can have as you expand in the scale because the enzymes are a discrete thing. So it's kind of like if I have a trash can and I have cubes of a certain size, they don't just automatically all perfectly fill up with a circular trash can. You're going to have some empty spaces and stuff. But the bigger the trash can, the more likely you are to be able to more tightly pack those in. So that's what generates the super linear scaling. Then it just starts to bend around as you get to this point. And it turns out, interestingly, to be that that point at which it starts to bend around uh, and become the exponent less than one is about the point at which you have the largest that bacteria kind of reach the general upper limit. There are a few exceptions, which are kind of interesting, but you switch over to eukaryotes at that point. And so eukaryotes, and there's like four or five different major theories about how and why they evolved to be the way they are, but they compartmentalize. So they basically then create, you know, these specialized organelles that do certain jobs. And they also have a lot of their enzymes on structures that are themselves fractal-like. I mean, people have actually measured the fractal dimension of these things and they're definitely not just uniformly distributed throughout the cell. So why compartmentalize? What's the advantage of doing that? The ultimate thing that happened was as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, then the exponent just settles down right to three quarters. But the interesting thing is, is that we haven't made any assumptions about like a vascular network or any of those kinds of scaling arguments. It strictly comes out of the fact that you're 
optimizing the amount of work that the cell can do, given that it has to move stuff in and out. And so it's just about how much empty space. It doesn't really say anything about the particular configuration of the space, other than that we're assuming that the particles are moving according to a random walk as they bounce around inside the cell. So we're really close to having a paper finished that pulls all these concepts together that includes thermodynamics, which goes back to the issue that the reactions reverse if you can't dissipate products, and the idea of fractal organization, and the trade-off between needing to move stuff and do work. And so it would extend almost beautifully because the curve that so one of the interesting things is if you just put in all the standard thermodynamic parameters and diffusion coefficients and stuff like that, that people have measured for cells, just take an average and you plug those right into the math, then you get a curve that sits right through the data points. You don't have to fit it. So basically it provides an alternative explanation for what's happening at single cells that don't have organized or pressurized vascular systems, but that seamlessly merges into the theory of West at all, in which you do have pressurized vascular systems. And so then it asks these really cool questions like, why are you forced to use pressurized vascular systems when you get up to about a mass of about a gram? And there are organisms that use them at even smaller sizes, but that sort of seems to be the limit at which you hit that. Why do eukaryotes compartmentalize things? Or the other way of saying it is, how is it that bacteria are still around given that they can only get up to a certain size? And it also begs the question of, so is that what viruses' problem is? Is that because they're so small, they can't, they can't fit enough enzymes, so they have to borrow somebody else's space in order to do the work. So that, you know, they really are the ultimate parasite, which I guess, you know, that's everyone sort of thinks is a virus that way. But basically what we're arguing is that there's a physical explanation for why that happens at a certain size. Anyway. So that's some cutting edge stuff that we're doing and it's really, really cool. And it kind of does synthesize a lot of the work that both of us have been doing over the past decade or so. Well, you would be then, I think, the right person to to pose a question that I posed to Jeffrey West in, in episode 36 and and which to which he kind of just threw up his hands. Um, because, you know, I mean, his, his work predicts that the ongoing acceleration of cities as the demographic shift continues and the human population grows, that you get into these accelerating innovation crisis cycles where you're constantly creating the externalities that then come back to bite you and you have to solve your way out of the problem that was created by the unintended consequences of your last innovation. So he plots this on this sort of ever steepening stair step into the finite time singularity, where he's like, this is the point where we either come up with a new internet level innovation every six months or civilization collapses. Those are your <laughs> options. But like when I, you know, when I look at this, it, you know, and everybody in the tech world seems to be trying to innovate their way out of the, the crisis created by innovation at this sort of meta level. But to me, listening to you talk about, well, there's a natural upper bound set by thermodynamics on the size of a bacterium. And, you know, and we talked about that with, with Chris in episode 17, how that kind of sets the stage for these transitions into complex cells and that you see a similar, not identical, but something like that is going on in the transition from single-celled eukaryotes to multicellular complex life. And so it kind of suggests to me, first of all, that human population 
when people talk about collapse, people think of it in very sort of binary terms. Like we're either going to solve all of these problems and we're taking this to the stars or it's the end of human civilization and possibly the biosphere, you know, and there's no, there's no sensitivity here to like the sine wave that we might be on or the fact that all of this is precipitating some kind of major evolutionary transition in the structure of human civilization, which work by David Wolpert and Tim Kohler and others at SFI, Hajime Shumiao, Michael Price, et cetera, have looked at this kind of thing through history happening again and again and again, that you know, population scales to a point that begs a new information architecture. And at any rate, I'm just curious if you feel like this work that you're doing with Chris offers a possibly predictive model for the bounds of the size of cities and of the pace, the upper limit for the pace of civilization, and whether it suggests not equilibria per se, but reliable quantitative thresholds that we should shoot for or mind over the decades to come. Yeah, I mean, since we're speculating. So one of the things that the theory predicts is that, in fact, the three-quarters exponent isn't like, at least from the mechanism that we're looking at, isn't really some hard and fast geometric rule. The number you get is still a function of the thermodynamics. So it turns out that, in fact, that exponent is actually decreasing slightly as you get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so you can actually calculate the point at like how big of a metabolic entity you could have to the point where you get where the thing is strictly surface to volume ratio. It's basically about heat dissipation complete. Well, it turns out that the size of that is something like six times 10 to the eighth bigger than the biggest dinosaur. Okay. Now you can say, well, yeah, well, when you get that big, you have vascular systems, so your models shouldn't even really work. But my point was, if you did create vascular systems so that you could increase the speed of movement of things, then that presumably means that you could have a metabolic entity that could be much, much bigger than that. So what that to me suggests is that if we think of the planet Earth as like an organism that's like spread super thin, so we think about the atmosphere and the surface of the Earth setting the upper and lower bounds as a geometric object, but if you think about it as, as an entity, as a metabolic entity or whatever, then I don't think there may be limits set, but those limits are probably set by the speed at which you can move materials around. And it would also suggest that there is a certain amount of space that has to be allocated to that movement. If we're just thinking about, all I'm thinking about is sustaining metabolic, you know, like the work that people are doing. So you can think about it in money flows. That's essentially how the internet has provided the cheat code is because as we discovered during COVID, we can sit in the same chair in the same spot day after day after day and still function at some level. And why? Because we can get somebody to bring food to our house. <laughs> the point is that, you know, at some point we're still limited by the ability to get materials to our own bodies, but we're able to multiply that same material into like 15, 50, 500 times as much economic activity because we can use essentially the information flows of the internet. I mean, we've known since the 70s of Paul Ehrlich's population bomb and all of the massive amount of work that's been done by NGOs across the developing world that we may have a thermodynamics problem of how much solar energy can be converted into metabolically useful energy because there's all those inefficiencies that we have to deal with. So a lot of people focus on how much agricultural land can we even have? And is there a way to increase the efficiency of the land that we're using? So there's that issue. 
But then the other issue is distribution. So if you ever fly, I don't know, I've, most people have forgotten flying, but... It's been a while, yeah. <laughs> somebody on a call today was at an airport. He's like, wow, I forgot what an airport even sounded like. But anyway, the, but if you ever fly over one of the so-called mega cities, things that are like 20 million people, what you, what you see is that there's part of the city is connected by fast moving hubs and allows you know, really rapid movement of materials at well over the, the speed that's required to deliver it and support metabolic activity of humans. But a large fraction of those cities are, we would call them like shanty towns or they have various names. But basically, if you look at those, you can't even see how people move in and out of them. It's just basically like a solid wall of roofs, which is almost analogous to these cells that Chris and I were imagining of just being full of things that do work, but there's no way for them to get their products out. So you look at those and those are like massive centers of poverty and they're self-organized because nobody came in and said, okay, you put your shack here or your house there. They just sort of built in a self-organized way, but because the flow of uh, materials and stuff is so low because of the poor nature of them, then you don't have to sustain such a, rapid movement of things because the activity is low, but then you can't accelerate that because it doesn't have the capacity to deal with a, a greater amount of economic activity. And so to the extent that you get positive feedbacks in these things, so the roads are so narrow that you can literally touch doorways with your arms to having four lane freeways moving in and out of a city center or, or mass transit, things that move rapidly in and out. So you have the two alternative feedbacks. So then you build up this inequity of the ability to sustain metabolic activity. So if people say, well, we want to develop alternative livelihoods and markets and stuff in these poor areas, it's really hard to do because you can't, you probably, I mean, I don't know about the math, so I'm just speculating here, but you, you just simply can't move things in and out of those systems as rapidly as you can other places. And so it might behoove from a very, very, very high up level about this, this whole issue about distribution networks and the inequity in those networks may be the thing that's actually limiting our ability to produce things as humans, not because we designed it that way on purpose, but because most of these things are self-organized. So for me, the question is, is that if you just let people self-organize in what they're doing, then the amount of economic activity that they're engaged in will end up producing feedbacks that lead to these big discrepancies. And then you have this ever-growing larger portion of the population that can't participate in the rapid economy, and then you have this huge disparity in revenues and income and so on. So it kind of goes back to the points that you were making that is our limit, some physical limit, like in terms of if we could design the world in an ideal fashion, could we be doing more than what we're doing? I'm, I'm pretty sure we could, but letting local self-organization principles that operate under different constraints play out then produces these discrepancies in the ability of things to move in and out of, of human systems. So that ultimately, on a per capita basis, puts a limit on our productivity. So I don't know, I'm trying to play along here <laughs> and extending the things that we're learning about what's going on inside a cell <clears throat> to the work that people have been doing with how cities are organized. And I'm probably trampling on top of People are saying, if you, you don't know what the hell you're talking about because we all know that X, Y, and Z. Um, so I, you know, I get it, but I'm, I'm just saying that I'm not sure that people often think that things like the internet and communication networks are still somehow ultimately constrained by material networks. 
We still have to get raw materials to build houses, to eat, to drink. And, you know, people point out that the, you know, one of the biggest environmental problems aside from the global warming issue, you know, is things like fresh water or access to healthcare. All of those things are related to physical networks, like healthcare. Yeah, I can tell you better things to do over Zoom, but ultimately there's really no substitute from having healthcare professional and person meet face to face. You just can't ever really truly get around that. So you still have to be able to move people around and people have to have access to things. And, you know, I know people who like, if I, if the only place I could go to find a doctor is to go downtown New York City, I would never see a doctor because I just don't, you know, I'd rather die than have to deal with that environment because it's just <laughs> like they can't mentally process it because I'm not used to it. Whereas people from New York City, if I have to go sit in a log cabin for three months until the pandemic is over, that would probably have equal mental stress and strength. So if there's a connection, it's probably due to what leads to the inequity in these distribution networks. And to what extent does that inequity put a constraint on the behavior of the whole system? So you can have all the innovations you want, but if they only apply to an increasingly smaller and smaller proportion of the population, eventually there's a, a tipping point at which the the larger proportion of people are not being supplied with the materials, goods, and services they need, which you can really ultimately think of as like an uh, unacceptable level of entropy in the system. So then it just kind of collapsed because it can't stay organized. Olay. Well, a, a couple things there. One is New York City. Wow. Have I ever been anywhere where the challenges of diffusion transport across the <laughs> membrane of a city are not more obvious. The amount of effort it takes to get out of New York when you're in it is unbelievable. And you know, and to that point that you were making about slums and shanty towns and so on, when we had Luis Betancourt on the show back in episode four, he was talking about exactly this thing. You stage an intervention by using network models to identify where in a slum streets should go for better transport of materials and people and so on. But you're right. It is an interesting analogy to chew on that people tend to think in terms of the sort of ideal of what is possible given top-down technocratic management. But that always bumps up against precisely the kind of hidden limits and constraints that you're identifying in this paper. You know, and I think about that in terms of, you know, this is not just about, you know, how do we properly refrigerate our server farm so that, that we can continue to grow the surface area of the planet for better dissipation in our computations. But there's this other piece that you spoke to, and I think that this is where it really comes back down to earth in this conversation. In your talk, you know, you spoke about how the decline in the availability of elements with increasing temperatures reduces trophic transfers in ecosystems. It gets to this point of like, well, you might have the best idea in the world, but if you if you can't recruit the resources required to execute it, it's never going to happen. And I, I would love to hear you speak to this piece of it in particular, because this is sort of where the buck stops in terms of the implications of this application of thermodynamics to biochemistry. You know, you say the nutrient density of crops is declining with global warming. So we can't just make this place hotter and hotter and somehow still apply a perfect solution to it because the material substrate upon which those decisions depend is falling out from under us. And I'd love to hear you speak to these two curves. Yeah. Well, you know, this is something that we study in trophic interactions and ecological systems. So we have one place where you have this 
high amount of rainfall, massive amounts of productivity, and relatively little of that productivity ever gets consumed by another animal. So most tropical rainforests, while they're massively good at decomposing dead materials, most of the productivity that's produced in them is never consumed. It just dies and then decomposes. So how do I compare a system like that that's massively productive, but if I actually look at how many things and sort of the total mass of things that are being supported by that productivity, it's much lower than if I go to, let's say, a grassland like Serengeti or the Great Plains of North America, where historically or even still currently, the animals that are in an equilibrium with the resource, at least according to the numbers, are eating anywhere from 40 to 70% of what's produced. So the question is, why and how do we get these differences? Well, the differences are driven by what is the nutrient content of the plants. And so then the question is, well, so, so then we have environmental factors that are controlling nutrient content, as well as environmental factors that are controlling the total amount of production. So any crop agricultural system is based with that same dilemma in the sense that I can grow massive amounts of sugarcane, <laughs> you know, huge biomasses that far exceed the production of corn or anything like that. It's, you know, huge, huge biomasses. But most of what's produced is inedible to people. Whereas you can get these huge densities of animals in Serengeti living on something that only grows this tall. And the difference is the nutrient content. So in agricultural systems and agricultural research organizations and universities and programs have for years been focused on production, like how much crop can you produce? And not that much work has really focused on the idea that, well, as environments change or across different kinds of soils and rainfall and, and that kind of thing, then how is that actually changing the nutritional content? And I think mostly that's because nobody has ever, and especially with temperature, nobody ever really put the idea together that if I change the temperature, that the optimal nutrient content for the plant to grow at those higher temperatures is actually lower than it would be if it was cooler. That's just a hypothesis. It doesn't really have a current physiological explanation, even though people have started to notice the patterns. And so the reaction diffusion thermodynamics would predict that that should happen. And the reason is, is because as it gets hotter and you have this bigger problem of trying to dissipate heat in products, then each enzyme can much, can, or is much more likely to be able to produce as much product as you can handle without having the internal entropy of the system increase too much. So therefore, I don't need as many enzymes. I don't need as high a concentration of enzymes. And since much of the nutrition in a plant comes from things like chlorophyll and other proteins and stuff that are all related to the amount of work that a plant leaf can do, then that means that those plant leaves, and to some extent, by proxy to things like seeds, so if you're talking about corn or you're talking about wheat or rice, then there's essentially less nutrients in the plant to be able to put into those crops. So that's the connection between the biochemistry and the crop thing. Again, there's a whole bunch of people will be screaming at me like, well, there's a whole bunch of leaps you just made there that we don't really have good experimental evidence one way or the other for that because nobody's bothered to look. Or if they had, it was just as one of the steps and they didn't see how they all fit together. So I think the thing that we have to realize, for me, that's the main thing. It's just thinking that as we change temperature, it's not about how that's affecting production. And that's part of the issue. But the other part of the issue is how are we changing the nutritional content of our plants? And how can we get around doing that? And so what, what can we even do about it? 
And because we're talking about these fundamental physical properties, it may not be something that you can get around with genetics. I mean, that's the thing is everybody's, well, just bioengineer a plant that can grow at hot temperatures, but it's also a high quality. Well, if that causes a plant to suffer thermodynamically for reasons that have nothing to do with the with the particular genetic, I mean, it's the, the genetics are happening in this physical context. And so those thermodynamics are sort of irrevocable. Then genetics isn't going to permanently solve the problem because you're going to have plants that don't do that, that end up doing better than the plants that are doing. So it's just something that we have to keep in mind and to recognize that by the same token, the cold temperate areas that never used to be able to grow crops because the growing seasons are too short may become our prime agricultural areas now because they're still cool enough to raise high quality plants. But, and now they're warm enough to have a long enough season that you can actually produce a crop. The downside is most of those areas, because they had short growing seasons, they often hold high carbon stocks because they have these seasons of productivity. There's carbon that goes in the ground, but because it's so cold most of the year, microbes don't break down the organic matter. So the organic matter builds up year after year after year after year. So you get these areas with really high carbon stocks. So now I'm going to convert those into farm fields. Then all of that carbon that was stored there just goes right to the atmosphere. So it's kind of like there's like all these multiple unintended consequences that you have. So that's what makes ecology so fun and also so frustrating. Because, you know, policy people say, well, just tell me what solution I can use. And it's like, well, you need to try out like 15 different things and see which one actually works because there's too many variables for us to tell you the one right now. That's just some of my thoughts about it. But in terms of like engineering, how we deal with global warming, we need to be prepared, I think, that there may be some physical inevitabilities that are built into the fundamental biochemistry of photosynthesis and the way that organisms do work that might cause us to have to rethink how we're going to respond to that. It's like, can we expand the corn growing region far enough northward fast enough to keep up with climate change? Or does cultural barriers to doing that make it hard for someone in Canada who's never been able to farm corn because of the growing season? Now you have to think about farming corn instead of wheat. Those are other social issues that influence how things change. But I think that we have to ask those kinds of big questions. They cross national boundaries. They make us think more in terms of like whole biomes and very, very large landscape ecosystem type questions, rather than thinking about it from a biotech point of view, which is, well, I just need to engineer the gene in the plant that'll make it do what I want in this particular environment. I mean, that's not even mentioning how much more nuance you have here than the brute force. Let's just throw a bunch of calcium carbonate up in the atmosphere. And let's see, I had, yeah, I guess a last comment on, on what you just said, it would be, it's funny how much deeper the discipline of ecology has become since we realized, and you know, a lot of, a lot of historians peg the sort of advent of you know, cybernetics to World War II, you know, to targeting computers, but also to the nuclear bomb and the recognition that fallout gets up into the jet stream and blows all over the world. And there is no outside anymore. Just to kind of tie a bow on this, I think your work is so fascinating in that if you propose, as you kind of hinted at a moment ago, that the earth is something approximating the upper bound of one of these surface area maximizing intelligent living systems. Where does it export its, <laughs> you know, like where are we? 
at some point, the conceit that we can control everything bumps up against the real physical membranes that we're dealing with here. You know, one of the things I love about the conversation going on right now at SFI around what engineering and design look like in light of all of this is it's not you know, some sort of omniscient control of the markets or of architecture, but a tango with this adaptive intelligence that lies all around us and is distributed through all these these systems. And super glad that we got the opportunity to talk. And uh, I would love to know what, if anything, have we not discussed today that is <laughs> the cutting edge for you? Like, where is your curiosity tugging you right now? Okay. So, I guess we could start the argument that a lot of people have argued that basically beef is bad. So if we want to change the climate, we all have to stop eating beef or things that are produced on factory farms because of the inefficiency and because of the, and in particular case of ruminant animals, the methane that's produced. And then there's also calculations people have made that people have suggested that in fact, beef is also produces a lot of nitrous oxide, which if we convert it to the equivalent CO2, is a major thing. So one of the things that goes back way in time in ecology has been this idea that we have kind of like this production in the absence of consumers. And then if we have consumers, they just sort of reduce that production down to some level, whether it's just a little bit, like in the rainforest I'm talking about earlier, or a whole lot, like in many grasslands. So one of the big questions has been, is it possible to take the 40% of the Earth's land surface that's considered rangelands. So these are lands that are too dry for crops, generally speaking, or they're on incredibly poor soils, so they're too, to the, the soils are too nutrient poor for crops. Even if we put in massive amounts of fertilizer, they often get too much rain and the nutrients just leach out of the soil. So you have these massive areas across the globe surface that really the only way, as we know of it now, for humans to gain functional calories and nutrients from those systems is to graze them with animals. So the question is, is the methane of those animals, is that the only thing that we need to worry about? Well, so one of the things that I've been working on in the last decade is this idea that when animals graze a system, they only have episodic effects, which then allow the system to recover. So from a very SFI point of view, we have a network of trophic exchanges that then is essentially disrupted by a heavy amount of, you know, like, so some parts of that network are massively disrupted, but only for a short period of time. And then the network has the opportunity to be resilient to that. And so long ago, Sam McNaughton working in the Serengeti, when he was sitting there looking at it, he made measurements that suggested that when we have this kind of episodic grazing, it actually leads to higher production of the system because the whole ability of the system to gather so say assimilate carbon dioxide and through photosynthesis, you basically go through that same process. And the reason is, is because you're putting the system back into a place where the plants are no longer resource limited again. So the net thing is that, so when you have this episodic herbivory and you have this regrowth of grass that follows, uh, that follows the herbivory, the total amount of photosynthesis over the whole of the season is higher under grazing than it would be without. So there's been this huge movement in the agricultural field and it has like a ton of different names. It's gone from rotational grazing. What I call it now is short duration, high density. The idea is we get a bunch of animals, we keep them together, we move them around relatively rapidly. So they're never in one place very long, but they have a really strong impact when they're there, but then they're gone and there's all this time when plants still have resources to regrow. 
And so if you invent systems like this, then you can actually increase the amount of carbon that's assimilated by the system and therefore increase the amount of carbon that's in the soil. So in a few of the cases now that people have studied, and again, a lot of scientists are not really on board with this because it hasn't been done in controlled experiments. But we have lots and lots of little test cases that would suggest that when you implement this kind of, and it's actually a form of mimicking natural systems because a lot of the natural systems are migratory. But we don't, we've lost that because we've encroached on all their space. So when we mimic the natural systems, which are engaged in this episodic trophic transfer followed by resilience and recovery, then the amount of carbon being captured in the soil far exceeds the methane that's produced by the animals that are doing the work. So a while back, I formed this little company called Soils for the Future, which eventually sort of settled into being a consulting company where I basically would make some measurements and do some modeling exercises and do things. And we worked on this project in northern Kenya where we got local pastoralists to start having their animals mimic the movements of wildlife. So they were much more migratory and never stayed in the same place for very long. So we've actually got that point to the thing where we can demonstrate that the improvement of practices has actually sequestered way more carbon in the soil than the methane that the animals have produced. And so now everyone is trying to figure out how they can apply that to their system. So my little company that used to just get a couple months of summer salary equivalent of income has now been deluged by people that are interested in trying to see if they can do this. Even to the point that the whole country of Uruguay, the government of Uruguay, wants to basically turn their entire country into a grazing management carbon project. So the key to all of this new work that's been doing was there was a student named Jacob Penner at Syracuse who went to Yellowstone and he did this experiment where he clipped plants, each plant exactly by 50%. (laughs) Most tedious thing I can ever possibly imagine. And then he measured the productivity of those things after they clipped and he showed quite clearly that there was an increase in production that came from doing this 50% clipping. So he had brought in this one paper that had some math about it. And I was looking, I'm like, well, well, this paper's like missing the whole thing about plants that they grow up, bigger biomass become much more resource limited. So what happens if you change that? And then when I did that, then all of a sudden out popped all of these outcomes that were measured 30 years before by Sam McNaughton in Serengeti. So I'm sitting there going, okay. And then I'm thinking, you know what? Ecologists have never really looked at trophic interactions in this way. They always just kind of assume that if there's something out there eating it, they're kind of always eating it. So everything is kind of at a steady state. It's described by differential equations. So there's this rate of removal and a rate of production. And so everything is sort of always happening all at the same time. So when you change that up, and so things become happening as episodes or in discrete time intervals, then the whole dynamics of the system change. And I'm sure there's like hundreds of people out there studying networks and how they respond to pulses of disturbance and all kinds of other things like this. But in really complex systems, it's really hard to study that, except in like specific simulations where you're like, okay, I'm going to mimic a certain kind of network and I'm going to do stuff to it computationally. Because you can't really study it with differential equations because you have to know the time-dependent function of change. I did it analytically, but I used the simplest possible functions you can possibly use. You know, they're missing a lot of stuff ordinarily would say. But we normally don't have in ecology time-dependent functions or anything. So it's really hard to study how these episodes play out other than in simulations. So 
to me, the thing that we need to get together moving forward is thinking about this in a broader context, way beyond grazing and soil carbon, and thinking about how necessary is it that we accommodate the idea that we build networks, but they ultimately have to go through cycles where they get disturbed and then they have to show some kind of resilience and that the total amount of work done by these network systems is much greater when that actually happens than if we just assume that they're constantly at some sort of steady state. And I'm sure there's people that have studied this and I just haven't had time to go look at the general literature. But to me, that it's like a great potential connection between solving some real world problem of should we eat beef? Is there a way to eat beef in a way that's friendly to the climate? not to studying fundamental properties of networks and how much work they do and the necessity of sort of resilient episodes for their function. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, just to link it again, relentlessly to other SFI research, it sounds a lot like the work that Stephanie Crabtree and Jen Dunn did on the Martu and fire foraging and the way that some indigenous peoples actually create biodiversity rather than just hammering the same thing over and over and eroding the topsoil and destroying the trophic networks. Anyway, Mark, this has been totally fabulous. You know, I thought it was really interesting. We just shared an article a press release on some of Chris Kempis's work with the NASA Agnostic Biosignatures Lab, trying to use scaling laws and stoichiometry to figure out the elemental ratios where you might find life. And I was just like, oh God, I want to ask you, based on these dynamics, the decline in certain kinds of elemental availability suggests that there are probably even further constraints on top of the ones that Chris and Simon Levin and others just posed to like, should we be looking on colder worlds than we would have otherwise thought for life? Or like, how does this change the way that we think about the Goldilocks zone and and that kind of stuff? Yeah, thermodynamics would definitely have something to say about that. And probably there's an interaction between the temperature and element ratios, meaning that certain element ratios would allow you to function in cooler environments, potentially, assuming that you overcame the issue of freezing water. So if you have a different solvent that doesn't freeze at a certain thing, but I mean, there are those speculations about life that depend on different solvents, then that opens up a whole different world of different possible limiting elements and stoichiometries that then probably, depending on how those different elements play in building catalysts. I mean, I think if we're looking at life, we're always going to be looking at the right along with whether you have a substrate that can generate energy, you've got to have catalysts of some kind. And we use organic chemicals mostly for those catalysts, except that at the core of them, there are certain elements like manganese, magnesium, copper, cobalt. So all of those so-called vitamins and minerals that we always have to take, most of those are metals that lie at the core of those enzymes. And you can show, for example, nitrogen-fixing plants in certain places actually been shown to be limited by molybdenum because that's the core metal that sits in the in the nitrogenase enzyme. So there are a lot of places they're not, but there are places where they have been shown to be limited by that particular element. So what I'm saying is that if we're thinking about where can life exist, we have to think about where do we have substrates? So we have to have electron donors and all that stuff, but we also have to have the catalytic biomolecules that can do that. And whether those things are like pure metals, like chemical companies use all the time, or whether there's some kind of organometallic and what that metal is and what those properties would be, to me, that's just a huge universe for exploration possibilities because of the interaction with temperature. 
It just makes me think that the global economy is only going to get as big as we have enough cobalt and palladium. And <laughs> like, you know, like at what point do we start harvesting asteroids in order to keep making phones? Anyway. Yeah, there's been papers that argue that it's the search for phosphorus, that that's the thing that's ultimately going to limit our agricultural production. I've seen a couple of papers in the last couple of years about that. And especially, so one of my grad students just discovered by looking at data from Serengeti, that in fact, it looks like the impact of the herbivores may be limited by phosphorus in the Serengeti, not by nitrogen, which is what everyone or sodium that everyone has always assumed or, or speculated on. And most people who study terrestrial ecology, unless they work in really old soils like in Australia or Africa, they don't really pay that much attention to phosphorus in natural systems. And so things that make bones are highly vulnerable to the total amount of phosphorus they can accumulate over our lifetime. So we don't have a problem with it because we've massively shifted phosphorus from these pools in the earth and mined it effectively and put it on our crops and our crops have taken it up. But at some point, if we run out of that kind of fertilizer, then again, we get back to this plant nutrition rather than production as being an issue that limits us. So yeah, even on our own planet, we're still trying to figure out what elements are really limiting life. So, you know, Florida sits on a huge phosphorus deposit. Yeah, well, I mean, eventually it'll be like fracking, except you're fracking for phosphorus because you'll find a technology that when phosphorus becomes sufficiently expensive, then it's worth doing that technique to mine it out. Sell off Florida for parts. We don't need it. Yeah, it's it's like phosphorus is kind of like oil was in the 70s where everyone predicted that we run out of it, but then we never have because we keep inventing new technologies that allow us access to different pools. Anyway, yeah, this is super fun. Super fun. I'm so glad that you invited me to chat. Thanks for taking an extra long time with us. Way, way beyond the book hour. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.